morning, everybody. It is great to be with you on a brisk January morning in Northeast Ohio. You know, they say cold weather is good for the temperament. You believe that? No? Pastor Reggie, our new worship pastor, and his family are here today. Uh, they've been in this week house hunting, and I told them yesterday as we kind of bumped into each other, I said, if this type of snow and rainy weather doesn't convince you to move to Northeast Ohio, nothing will. But we're grateful to have them and grateful for the Lord's provision there. Let's pray together as we turn our attention to the scriptures. Father, thank you so much for your word, for this book of Galatians, which encourages us in the grace that you give us in the Lord Jesus, how you transform our outlook on life, how you secure our eternity, how you give us your spirit, and how you continue to show your grace upon grace to us. As we see uh, and close to the end of this book now, God, continue to change our heart, to change our mind, uh, to conform us to the likeness of your Son, for the sake of your glory. Amen. A number of years ago, a 14-foot-tall bronze crucifix was stolen from Calvary Cemetery in Little Rock, Arkansas. It had stood at the entrance of that cemetery for over 50 years. The cross was put there in the 1930s by a Catholic bishop, and at the time it had been valued at over $10,000. The thieves apparently cut it off at its base and hauled it away in a pickup truck. The police believed that they cut it up into smaller pieces and sold it for scrap. The thieves figured that the 900-pound cross at that time would probably bring about $450. That's it, in scrap metal. They obviously didn't realize the value of that cross. And that's the problem, isn't it? Understanding the value of the cross. Some people reject the Lord Jesus and they reject him because they take great exception to the implications of the cross. Some people pursue the Lord Jesus, but while pursuing him, try to minimize the centrality of the cross. Other people don't think so clearly about it. Maybe they just have things in their life or priorities to them that are of greater value. And in elevating those other values, they inadvertently undercut the significance of the cross. The value of the cross. That is what Paul concludes his letter to the Galatians with. You know, the final words of a letter are often some of the most pointed Final words of a letter are often an opportunity to review a couple things that have been written earlier in the letter and then drive home a, a major point. These are the words I want you to be left with. These are the things that I want you to consider. And he wants to emphasize the cross. And so let's read Galatians chapter 6, starting at verse 11 together. This is what it says. Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. That's kind of a peculiar phrase, isn't it? 
Paul starts this final section. To this point, he had most likely been dictating the letter to his secretary who had been writing it. And, and now, as was customary, for the, for the last thing, for one of the most important things, he wanted to see them, or he wanted them to see that the handwriting had changed, his signature was present, because he wanted to drive home the cross. See with what letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may be persecuted, they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Remember the backdrop of the letter. There were some, a group of Jews, who were in this community in Galatia, and they were promoting a false gospel. We've talked together about a number of the false gospels that are out there today. These people said that you needed to believe in Jesus and follow the Old Testament law to be saved. And following the Old Testament law meant that you needed to be circumcised. They believed in a gospel that was for their faith and adding particular works to it. You couldn't be saved, they said, if you didn't follow the law. You couldn't be saved unless you had this outward sign of circumcision. And now... They were persecuting these new Christians in an attempt to force them to conform. They were focused on external observance. They were focused on the outside. But throughout the book of Galatians, we see that Paul has been pointing us to the fact that the work of God in your life is something that starts on the inside, through faith. And so he said in Galatians chapter 2, he said, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Or Galatians chapter 3, he continues the same idea. You've received the Spirit by hearing with faith. That's internal, not external. You've seen miracles by the Spirit through hearing with faith. That's internal, not external. And know then, Galatians 3, 7, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Or the sons of God. Internal changes are what begin your Christian life. And those internal 
changes begin through faith in Jesus. Not following the rules, not becoming religious, not even coming to church regularly. It starts with saying, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. Jesus, I trust you to forgive me of my sins and restore me to God. That's why the Bible calls it new birth. Here in Galatians 6, a new creation is what matters. It's an inward change that you can't do to yourself. You see, false religions get caught up in all kinds of externals. They evaluate the success of something or someone based on all kinds of externals. They focus on following the law or certain set of morals or attendance of some kind or even performing or doing certain types of religious rituals that require people to be saved. But true religion, Paul says, starts with the internal. And then it always, that internal always in multiple ways makes its way out. The problem with making externals the requirement, something like circumcision, for example, is that that's only an outward sign, but it can't possibly reveal the thing that truly happens on the inside. The thing that only the Holy Spirit of God can do to you. Awaken your heart to him. Regenerate you. Give you desires and affections for things that you never even thought about before. And a longing to follow God. True religion is not based on external works. It's based on internal faith. And so look at the motives behind these Jews who are trying to pressure them toward the external. The motivation we see very clearly is fear. Verse 12 points us to that. It says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross. Aha! The focus on the external was to minimize the significance of the cross. Now, you might think of persecution, and you might think, well, I think of persecution as dictatorial governments who are disallowing conversion to Christianity, or maybe militant tribes of people in other countries who, who martyr the missionaries. Or maybe even you think of persecution and you might think of the ridicule or scorn that you have experienced in some way through the people that you know because you have chosen to follow Jesus. But here, it's the Jews who are persecuting the Christians, and they're persecuting them because of the cross. So if you're a Christian, then you need to understand that the cross will always invite some kind of persecution to you from different types of people. Uh, one side, it's an offense to those who charge the cross with being intolerant because the message of the cross is that there is the only one way to be restored to God through the work of Jesus on that cross. I mean, after all, nobody likes to be highlighted as a sinner. Nobody likes to 
come to the realization that all of their shortcomings and areas of rebellion are on display, laid bare before the God of the universe. And then to say that there's only one way, only one way to have that reconciled through the cross, that's offensive to some people. The cross is also offensive to a different kind of people. It's offensive to others because the good people of this world have the same ultimate penalty as the bad people of this world. Of course, it fails to recognize that our judgment for our standard for righteousness is not other people around us. <laughs> the standard for righteousness is a holy God of the universe who's perfect in every way. But we go through life and we often just, we, we often play this game, this internal game of jockeying with the people around us, comparing ourselves. And as long as I'm, as long as I'm better than her, I'm in pretty good position. And then we, of course, pick and choose the people that we know that we're better than so that we can continue to sort of encourage ourselves that we're, that we're just doing well enough and, and maybe even better than well enough. As long as I'm not like that person, I must be good with God. But we see here that when you stand at the foot of the cross, this is even ground. All people are in desperate need And Jesus meets that need. So the cross is offensive to both kinds of people. Both types of objections. Offensive to anyone who at their core believes in some kind of self-salvation. And most of us, if we're honest, at some point or another, revert to believing that if I just do good enough, it will all work out. Last weekend, the New York Times published an editorial by a man named David Bentley Hart entitled, Why Do People Believe in Hell? Now, the New York Times does not often publish religious articles. <laughs> it is one of the known secular largest media outlets in our country. And so what kind of religious article might it publish is interesting to consider. Hart teaches theology and philosophy at Notre Dame University, and in the article he attempts to shame all traditional Christians into abandoning their orthodox belief in hell. He tries to set forward a case from the Bible, which is not very compelling. But then he ultimately lands in this place and he says that the reason why people believe in hell is because there's a certain psychological allure to it. That as we order our world psychologically, people want to hold on to this old notion of hell because it helps them order their world, especially if they don't believe that they're the ones who have to go there. Now, of course, I disagree with David Bentley Hart on almost everything, but it wasn't what he said that was particularly surprising to me. That's what he didn't say. It's a pretty big thing to make worldview claims about heaven and hell, life and death, eternity and temporality. These are, these are the biggest things of life that we're talking about. These are the most serious considerations for our existence that we're talking about. 
and to make those claims about God that are independent of the most influential, the greatest event, the, the pinnacle of all of the biblical story, to make those claims without recognizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what it means for that, and then to make a claim ignoring the sort of uniform call of response to that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, namely, have faith in him, that's striking. But I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Because if there's no mention of sin, then there's no consequence of hell. <laughs> and if there's no consequence of hell, people don't need to be saved from anything. And if we don't need to be saved from anything, then there's no need for a cross. But this couldn't be further from the truth. And so Paul reminds us of it. Not only is it of vital importance, the cross is the center of the whole Christian life. It is so central to the Christian life that Paul even boasts about it. And he calls you to do the same. Look at verse 14. He says, in contrast to this false boast, this boast about doing the external things, about religious conformity, about following the law, about circumcision, he says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, it's an interesting expression to boast in something. I mean, what you boast in often reveals our sense of identity. I mean, what makes you the most happy, what you're most proud of, what you're most excited about, so excited that you would actually boast about it to others, often shows your self-perception. It often grounds your identity in something or someone. John Stott says that this idea of boasting is more than just bragging. It's to glory in, to trust in, to rejoice in, to revel in, to live for. The object of our boast or our glory fills our horizons. It engrosses our attention. It absorbs our time and our energy. So if my biggest boast is my career, then my identity is probably in some ways rooted in performance. Job performance. If my biggest boast is my car or my house, then my identity is probably somewhere rooted in material things. If my biggest boast is my children, getting closer to home now, then my identity is probably somewhere rooted in me being a good parent. And if my biggest boast is my religious deeds, then we too need to be concerned. Because religion that is based on what you do always prompts us to boast in something. 
but if we understand that a true relationship with God is something that is rooted not in external observance, but in inward change. And if we see clearly that that inward change is prompted by the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, then we don't focus on what we do. (laughs) There's only one thing to really, truly boast in. And that is the cross. Paul refused to boast in all kinds of things that most people boast about. Influence, intellect, material things, social standing, education. He boasted repeatedly in the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2, we decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Colossians 2.14, the victory of the cross. Philippians 2.8, the wonder of the cross. He boasts about it. He brags about it. He glories in it. It consumes his thoughts. It motivates his life. It arrests his attention. And it propels him throughout his days. What do you boast in? What do you glory in? What makes you the most excited? One theologian said, if someone understands the cross, it is either the greatest thing in their life or it is repugnant to them. And if it is neither of those things, they probably haven't understood it. And if we see that I need to completely depend upon Jesus, that my confidence there rests in him, then it becomes clear that the Christian's greatest source of confidence, both in life and in death, is the work of Jesus on the cross. That your greatest source of joy, (laughs) that your greatest hope for the future that your greatest boast is the work of Jesus on the cross. And when you see that you depend upon him and you need him for your salvation and it begins to affect your sense of identity, then everything around you starts to change. How you look at yourself and how you look at the world around you. And so he says that, in a sense, you, live, you start to live a crucified life. Look at verse 14 again with me. He says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule... Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. This is the inward change that he has been talking about that's starting to work its way out. My whole identity changes 
It's not based in what I do. It's not based in my job. It's not based in my performance. It's not based in my religious rituals. It's not even based in my kids. It's based in the cross. And then how I look at the world around me starts to change too because if it's not based in those things but it's based in the cross, then God is the one who chiefly defines that identity which he's been doing again and again throughout Galatians. He calls you his son in chapter 3 and an heir in chapter 4 and one who is walking in the spirit, chapter 5 and has the fruit of the spirit, chapter 5 and keeps in step with the spirit, chapter 5. A whole new identity. And this identity crucifies the world, he says. That means that In this identity, you view the world through the lens of the cross. He already said that we're crucified with Christ through faith, and we no longer live. He lives in us. He already said that we crucify the flesh with its sinful desires, chapter 5. And now he says the world is crucified to him. That's not to say that Christians sort of abandon the world altogether, that you isolate yourself from the world, that you go into hiding. But what it means to crucify something is to kill something. It means that the dynamics of the world no longer have power over you. The dynamics of the world are dead to exercise power over you. I'm found in God. And as a result... I don't need to fear the natural judgments of the world, nor do I need to conform to that tremendous cultural pressure out of some sort of fear that the backlash will undo me. Because my identity is in the cross, I'm free now to enjoy the world as it truly is. I'm no longer enslaved to it. I'm free to enjoy it because I'm not afraid of it anymore. I'm free to recognize that some parts of this world are rotting in sin, but I'm not afraid of its ultimate demise. I'm free to make choices in this life that are based on wisdom to the best of my ability, even though I can't know the outcome. I can't control the future. I can't manipulate the circumstances to ensure that those decisions will result in my good. But I I can't do those things. But I know the one who does those things. And he loves me. And he shows his grace to me and he calls me his son and he promises me an eternal future. And all of that happens through the cross. The Christian's greatest source of confidence in life and in death is in what Jesus did on the cross. Your greatest source of hope Your greatest source of meaning, (laughs) your greatest excitement for the future are a result of what Jesus did on the cross. And so that's what we boast in. We don't boast in my personal strengths. We don't boast in religious activity. We don't boast even in our moral victories. Those things only point us back to ourselves or back into slavery. But to boast in the cross is what gives us freedom. 
A whole new outlook on God, a whole new outlook on the nature of the world, a whole new outlook on what freedom actually is. All because God's grace is extended to you through Jesus' work on the cross. Author Philip Yancey wrote how he has interviewed a number of faithful followers of Christ in difficult places like Russia and China and Kazakhstan and Ukraine and Albania. And he always asks them the same question. He says, why did you take such a risk? Why did you choose to follow Jesus when your government, your teachers, and perhaps even your family insisted that it was all a lie? And he says again and again, I've heard a two-pronged answer. They speak of their spiritual thirst, an inner longing that no amount of noisy propaganda could silence. And then they tell of a humble Christian who loved them and led them to the possibility of a power that could help them against their battle of alcoholism or drugs or meaninglessness or any number of the things that plagued them. One of the faithful, a Soviet Union's most renowned sculptor who had designed Nikita Khrushchev's tombstone, eventually went into forced exile. And knowing the sculptor's talent, the authorities in the Soviet Union tried at first to hold on to him. They said, we need Niazvesny. But one official said, we cannot use him. We must create a communist Niazvesny. And his final rupture with the regime took place over a commission that he did for the Communist Party building. Niazvesny constructed a huge sculpture, some 50 feet high by 50 feet wide, that covered the entire facade of the building. And he submitted the designs in sections for approval from the party leaders. And only at the unveiling did they see the whole piece together. And as it was unveiled, there was a collective gasp. A huge cross covered the front of communist headquarters. A cross, said Niazvesny, can't you see? It's a face. But knowing his Christian beliefs, the authorities took it for a cross, and they expelled him from the country. And in the greatest irony, the cross stayed in place. The state that opposed it did not. Your greatest source of confidence, your greatest source of hope in life and in death, your boast is in what Jesus did on the cross. Long after the kingdoms of the world are gone, long after your own talents have faded and are forgotten, the accomplishments of Jesus on the cross will remain. And they're given to you freely forever. Let your glory, let your excitement, let your hope, let your boast be in the cross. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you for the confidence that we have because of him. We thank you for grace overflowing to us through his work on the cross. And we ask, God, for your help, that you would continue to allow us to reside in that place, to to depend upon him, to find our identity in him and through him, and as a result, to see the world in a whole new light. God, we love you. We thank you. In the name of our great Savior, amen.